So today um, we conclude our journey with Jesus from his introduction to the world on the banks of the Jordan River to his sacrifice for the world. So today in some ways is an end and today in many ways is just a beginning. Previously, last time we were here together, we found Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. He'd come there to celebrate Passover with his apostles. He came into a parade, a parade along the roads outside the city and inside the city. The city was filled with Jews who were expecting not just Passover, but perhaps this person, Jesus, that many had heard speak, many had seen perform miracles. Perhaps this was the time that he would declare himself as Messiah. And as hard as the church, the temple leaders and the religious leaders, as hard as they had tried to separate the crowds from Jesus, they'd been unsuccessful. In fact, even his enemies, even his enemies accepted the fact that there was no way they would ever win the crowd, that Jesus had the crowd. And at some point, one of them blurted out in a meeting, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him as they stared out into the streets of Jerusalem. And Jewish people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. As they were shouting, you are the king, here comes the king. They realized they had lost the battle. And their only opportunity would be to separate Jesus from the crowd, to have him arrested and ultimately have him executed. Jesus comes to the city. He secures a secure location for he and his guys to celebrate Passover. They gather that night and so much went on in that conversation. He had hinted throughout that he was here to establish something new, that Jesus did not come to be an and. Jesus came to be an instead of. And that night, he inaugurated what he called his new covenant, his new relational arrangement between God and mankind, a covenant that would be the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant with God and would be the replacement for God's covenant with the nation of Israel established at Mount Sinai through Moses. And just like contracts have terms and conditions, so covenants in ancient times had terms and conditions. And that very night, as they celebrated Passover, he gave them the terms and conditions of his new covenant. There wouldn't be 600 plus laws. There wouldn't be 10 commandments. There wouldn't even be two. There would just be one, the new covenant commandment. And it was this, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. That this would be, this would be the overarching ethic. This would establish the overarching morality for his brand new movement, the church. This was the mark of the covenant that Jesus came to establish with you and with all mankind. What a night. It started, over, started off with Jesus saying, from now on, when you celebrate Passover, you're not gonna celebrate Israel's migration out of Egypt. From now on, when you celebrate Passover, you're gonna do this in remembrance of me, that the bread is my body, that the wine is my blood. And they had no category for any of this. It was all so confusing. And as the night wore on, they could tell that Jesus became more and more disturbed. Something was up, but Jesus wasn't up. He seemed troubled. If Jesus could be worried, Jesus seemed worried. And where did Judas run off to? They all expected him to be back by now. After the supper, Jesus gets up and he says, let's leave, let's go to the garden. And they make their way to the garden of Gethsemane, an urban garden in the middle of the city. They'd been there many times. They went at night so they wouldn't be recognized. So no one would disturb them. They go into the garden. Jesus says, I want you to stay here and pray. And I'm gonna go further into the garden to pray alone. He prays for a while and he prays that agonizing prayer where he essentially says to his heavenly father, father, you and I know what's about to happen. And if I had a choice, I would choose another option. I would choose another route, but as always, not my will, but your will be done. He goes back to check on the boys and they are sound asleep. 
And he wakes them up and he says, could you not even pray with me for an hour? And then Judas shows up, but he's not alone. He brings with him a small army, temple henchmen, and they come to get Jesus into the shock, to the dismay, to the horror of the whole contingency. Jesus surrenders himself to the temple leaders. In fact, the text says this, then everyone deserted him and fled. The story continues. They took Jesus to see the high priest. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests were there and the elders and the teachers of the law. They all came together. They'd never been able to get this close to Jesus. They'd never been able to isolate him from the crowd. They'd never been able to look into those eyes. They'd never been in a place where they could reach out and touch him. And they were curious. And now because there was more of them than there was him, they were emboldened. And what follows next is so interesting and there's so much detail. And if you ever find yourself reading a part of a narrative in the New Testament and you think to yourself, how did they get this information? Where, who told them these things happened? It's so fascinating because we find out in the book of Acts, you know, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of Jesus' life. And Luke wrote the history of the church. It's called Acts. And in the book of Acts, we discover that many, many Pharisees became Jesus followers, not because of what Jesus taught, They became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. And no doubt it was some of those men who were in these meetings that gave the gospel writers this detail. Here's what happened. The chief priest, the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin, this is the entire Jewish Supreme Court, were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any, they couldn't find any. Many, many testified against Jesus, but they testified falsely. Their statements didn't even line up. Their statements didn't even agree. And then when they would ask Jesus a direct question, he refused to answer. Finally, the high priest, the most powerful person in the room begins to lose his temper. And he stood up and he said to the whole group, to Jesus, are you not going to answer? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And finally, the chief priest goes to the heart of the matter. The one question they want Jesus to answer out loud, because if he answers incorrectly, it's all the evidence they need to crucify him. And they ask, okay, are you or are you not? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And in this moment, Jesus held his future and your future in his hands. And he looked at the chief priest and the men in the room whose motives were anything but pure. And he said, I am. At that moment, the chief priest and the high priest tore their robes as a sign of lament and anguish. Why do we need any more witnesses? We don't need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard, we have all heard, we are all now witnesses to his blasphemy. And they all condemned Jesus. They condemned him as worthy of death. And then the temple guards stepped in and some began to spit on him while others blindfolded him and struck struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. The men in the room who were in charge, who now had what they needed from Jesus in order to condemn him to death, conspired together throughout the night to figure out what the next step was to enact their plan. And we don't know if they were up all night. We're sure that Jesus probably got no sleep that night 
But the text tells us that very early in the morning, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and again, the whole Sanhedrin, the entire Supreme Court, they came up with a plan. Because having determined Jesus' guilt, they still needed Rome in order to carry out their sentence. And their plan was simple. Their plan was to figure out a way to convince Pilate to execute Jesus that very day before Passover so they could all get back to business so the city would settle down so that people would give up on their messianic aspirations and things would be as they always had been. And they wanted this done before sunset, before Passover. So they came up with what they thought would be the best way to get Pilate to do their bidding. So the text says they bound Jesus and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate had been the governor of Judea, where the city of Jerusalem is, and the province of Samaria. He'd been the governor there for about seven years. And we know from history that Pilate, he could not stand the Jews. In fact, he didn't even like going to the city of Jerusalem. He lived in a palace on the coast and he only came to Jerusalem during festival days in order to keep the peace. And his favorite pastime was antagonizing the Jewish leaders and reminding them that they were subjects of Rome. And he reveled in their groveling. Now, by now, the text says, by now it was early morning, the sun begins to come up. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, uncleanness, they did not, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the elders, the Sanhedrin, they did not want to go into Pilate's palace. Otherwise, they would not be able to celebrate Passover. So they had gone through this series of elaborate cleansings so that they could lead Passover, so they could take part in Passover. And they knew if they stepped across the threshold, of Pilate's palace, if they entered the home of a Gentile, they would have to start that cleaning process all over again. So imagine the hypocrisy. They wouldn't cross a threshold, but they're about to insist that an innocent man be put on a cross. So Pilate, because he had no choice, Pilate comes out to them and he asks, okay, it's early in the morning. What charges are you bringing against this man? And they had a prepared statement. And here was their prepared statement. Pilate, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Translated, let's not get bogged down in the details. We just need a favor. We have been through this before. You know we wouldn't bring him here if this wasn't important. You know we really would not bring him here on the eve of Passover if this was not really important. So let's not get into the details. We need a favor. And Pilate loved it when the Jewish leaders needed a favor. So he eggs him on. He says, well, then go ahead. Take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. He wanted them to beg. He wanted them to acknowledge Rome's sovereignty over this Jewish rebel, this Jewish rebel state, to acknowledge that Rome was ultimately sovereign. So they sighed and they looked at Pilate because everybody knew the answer to this. Everybody knew this story. Everybody understood this scenario. But Pilate, as you know, we have no right to execute anyone. Ah, this was music to his Roman ears. Oh, that's right. You don't have the power to impose your own laws. What a pity. And then Pilate did something else to irritate them. He went back into his palace knowing they wouldn't follow because they were too good for that. But he insisted they bring Jesus in. The text says that Pilate went back into the palace inside and he summoned Jesus and he asked him, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And outside the religious leaders are going crazy because they're so afraid that if Pilate is one-on-one with Jesus, Jesus will do his magic. 
He swayed the crowd. He won the nation. There's no telling what he would say to Pilate. So as they're scared to death outside, wondering why their plan hadn't worked out and they didn't anticipate the fact that since they refused to go in, that perhaps Pilate would invite Jesus in. And Jesus seemed to have no reservation about spending time with Gentiles and sinners. In fact, that was part of the problem with Jesus was who he hang out with. And so Pilate goes to the heart of the matter because this was the rumor. Pilate had heard the rumors that the the rabbi from Galilee was coming to Jerusalem. He'd heard about the parade. He'd seen the crowds. His soldiers had reported back that we're on the verge of a riot because of the rabbi from Galilee. He's coming to the city for Passover. And now Pilate has his opportunity to ask his questions. Are you the king? And Jesus responds, is that your idea? Or did others talk to you about me? And then Pilate, he's on edge. Am I a Jew? He says, your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. Now tell me, what have you done? Why are we here? Why are we here so early in the morning? Don't you understand the stir that you've created and the chaos you've created in this city? So Jesus goes back to the original question because this is the question. And Jesus acknowledges, yes, I'm a king, but understand my kingdom is not of, not from, not like, not designed around the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, Pilate, if it were, Pilate, if it were, we know how this scenario would play out because this happens all the time. The same thing that happens anytime somebody claims to be a Jewish king. The same time anybody claims to be a Messiah. We know how this plays out. My servants would show up and they would have kept me from being arrested by the Jewish leaders. We know how this plays out. If my kingdom were of this world, I would outroam Rome. I would play by your rules. I would use force because Pilate, that's the way of things. But Pilate, my kingdom is nothing like your kingdom. It's nothing like the kingdoms you're familiar with. My kingdom is not anything like any kingdom on this planet. Ah, Pilate says, so at least we've gotten somewhere. So you are a king then. So Pilate goes back out to the crowd and he announces, he says to the chief priests in the crowd, look, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea. This is where Pilate is the governor by his teaching. And then one of them in the crowd says something I'm sure they agreed upon beforehand not to mention. And that was Galilee. He stirs up the people all over Judea and he started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And Pilate thinks to himself, ah, Galilee. So he is a Galilean. That's not even my jurisdiction. You've come to the wrong person. You're wasting your time. You need to take him to Herod. Herod is the governor of Galilee. And they turned to whoever said that in the crowd and said, we decided not to mention Galilee. This is taking too much time. Well, as it turns out, Herod, now Herod is the son of Herod the Great who built the temple. Herod the Great who sent his henchmen into Bethlehem many years earlier to murder all the two-year-olds because then two boys two years old and younger because he was afraid that someone else would take his place. And of course, like everybody else, he'd eventually died anyway. His sons controlled the area at the time or parts of the area. And at this point, his son Herod was the governor of Galilee. And he happened to be in town, of course, for Passover. He just happened to be on the other side of town. So Pilate says, well, look, 
Herod's in town. This is none of my business. Take him to Herod. Well, this is not going as they planned. So sure enough, Pilate hands them back, Jesus back to them. Their henchmen, their soldiers take them over, take him to find where Herod's living. He goes into Herod's house and Herod is thrilled. You can read this for yourself. Herod is thrilled to see Jesus because like Pilate, like so many others, he's never been able to get close. He's never been able to have a conversation and he's heard the rumors and he brings Jesus in and he asks Jesus questions and Jesus won't answer his questions. And then he says, Jesus, do some tricks. I've heard about your tricks. Do some tricks. Bring them something here. Do some of your tricks. And of course, Jesus refuses to play along. And Herod is fed up, doesn't see what he wants to see, doesn't hear what he wants to hear. And he sends Jesus back to Pilate. When Jesus gets back, Pilate gathers the group that had come accusing Jesus to begin with. And he brought this man and he says to them, you brought me this man. You brought me this man who was inciting the people to rebellion. Do any of you hear rebellion? No, me neither. Who would incite people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And by the way, neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, just to appease you, to get you off of my front porch so we can get on with Passover, I'll punish him. But then I'll release him. And the crowd went crazy. They said, no, away with this man, away with this man, away with this man. And then Pilate had his soldiers take him to where his guards spent their time. And he had Jesus flogged. For first century readers, there was no need for an explanation. They all understood this word. Two Roman soldiers, each with a cat of nine tails, with pieces of bone and metal fragments tied into the leather would stand behind a man and the man's hands would be bound and and placed way over his head as far as they could stretch him out. And they would take turns and they would count because even the Romans had rules about flogging. The pieces of metal and the pieces of bone would not only rip layer after layer after layer of skin off a man's back, it would rip layer after layer after layer of skin off a man's gut as those pieces of leather would wrap around and rip away skin time after time after time. People died from flogging. They bled to death. They died from infection. Now, here's the thing that we have to stop and talk about for a minute as 21st century people. It's, it is virtually impossible for us. I mean, and for me too, it is virtually impossible for us not to sanitize and then romanticize what happens next in these next few hours in the life of Jesus. And the reason it's almost impossible for us not to sanitize it and romanticize it is because most of us or many of us heard this story as children. And when you tell children a story like this, you have to remove the blood and the guts. You have to, re- you have to remove the part that it's just not appropriate for children. But for many of us, for most of us, perhaps for, again, for maybe you, the last time you heard this story was as a child. The last time you've heard anyone read these passages was as a teenager, And so again, you you sort of got the PG version or the PG-13 version of the story. But as an adult, it's so important that we not sanitize it or somehow have soft music playing in the back and make this some kind of spiritual inspirational moment because it is anything but that. And to maintain our childlike view of this story is to miss the story. Because the truth is, we would all look away. 
the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And then they put a purple robe on his beaten, bloody, raw back. And they went up to him again and again and again. And they said, hail king of the Jews. And they slapped him in a face that had already been bruised the night before by the temple guard. And once more, Pilate came out to the waiting crowd. And he said to the Jews gathered there, look, look, in hopes that Jesus stayed in hope that seeing Jesus in this beaten state in hopes that perhaps they would have a little bit of pity. Perhaps they would say, okay, enough is enough. Okay, we're done. He's ruined. He'll probably die anyway. Surely this was enough to get them to leave him alone, to not have to do something he didn't want to do, and to get past another Passover so he could go back to the coast where he wanted to be anyway. Look, he said, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. Even when he was being beat to death, he did not break. Even when he was being flogged, he did not shout out and confess things that he knew weren't true in order to get my men to stop. This man is absolutely innocent. But as soon as the chief priest saw him, they shouted, crucify crucify. And Pilate can't believe this. He's never seen anything like this. He says, I I'm done with this. Look, you take him, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And then the Jewish leaders went into part two of their plan since part one was taking too long. They said, okay, we have a law. We didn't mention this earlier. We have a law. And according to that law, he must die. And here's why. We never told you why this was a capital offense because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, the text says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. He was more afraid because son of God intersected with Roman myth, Roman legend. Suddenly this had crossed over from just simply a Jewish thing to a Roman thing. For someone to claim to be the son of God was threatening to the empire. This was a big deal. This was a code word. And now he knew he needed to do something else. He goes back inside. The text says that the guards took him back inside and Pilate decides to question Jesus even further. But this time Jesus won't answer. And I love this. In fact, if you're not a Christian or you left faith or somebody's making you watch this or listen to this, or you stumbled into church because somebody promised you lunch or you stayed up late and you're watching this, please don't miss this. Next line. Uh, for whatever reason you left church or quit believing, I get that. If I were you, I bet I would have too. So there's, there's no guilt, there's no judgment, but I just don't want you to miss this. A first century Roman soldier who had seen everything, the text says, was amazed. You see, this is when men groveled and begged, not for their life. This is when men fell to their knees and begged for a quick death. And Jesus won't answer. He finally is so exasperated. He says to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? To which Jesus could have said, then Pilate, why are you the one that is so afraid? But here's what he said. Jesus answered him and he said, you Pilate would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate has seen a lot. 
He'd seen men die in battle. He'd seen men die immediately in battle. He had seen men die slowly in battle. He'd seen men bleed to death on the surgeon's table. He'd heard screams. He had seen it all, but he'd never seen anything. And he'd never seen anyone like this because when he stared into Jesus' eyes, those were not crazy eyes. Those were eyes that were fully aware. Those were eyes that were sincere. Maybe most importantly to a man like Pilate, those were eyes that were fearless. So much so, the text tells us that from that point on, Pilate did everything he could to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders wouldn't have it. The text says that they kept shouting, if you let this man go, part three of their plan. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Checkmate. They had him. Pilate was outmaneuvered. His hands were bound. They'd called him out publicly. And Pilate knew that Emperor Tiberius had eyes and spies everywhere in the empire. In fact, the text says that when Pilate heard this, when they finally got to this part of their plan, when they finally got to this level of argument. The text says that when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat, a place known as the stone pavement. There's so much detail in this part of the story. And it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, here is your king. He continues to twist the knife. Here is your king. You want me to crucify your king. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, he says, shall I crucify your king? Do you really want me to crucify your king? And before they can stop themselves, someone in the crowd shouts out something that at any other moment, at any other time would have been, would, would have been considered blasphemous. Somebody shouts out, no, we have no king. But Caesar, the chief priest, answered. And finally, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers, Pilate's soldiers, took charge of Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, just a small gesture of mercy. But he did not take it. And as you read this part of the story in all four gospels, it's like time slows down. There's so much detail. It's almost moment by moment. It's hour by hour. It's conversation by conversation. It's line by line. It's it's so much detail. But suddenly when we get to this part of the story, all of that stops because what came next required no explanation. And they crucified him. Invented by the Greeks, perfected by the Romans. It could take a man days to die from crucifixion, depending on how healthy the person was and how well the Romans did their job. Because the goal was not a quick death. The goal was a prolonged death. In fact, crucifixion was so gruesome. Crucifixion was so gruesome that church leaders later on banned it They banned it from any depiction in art. In fact, crucifixion was banned from any depiction in art until the fourth century when when Constantine became emperor and banned it as a method 
of execution. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the crucifixion did not become a frequent motive or or motif of Christian art until the generations which had actually seen real crucifixions were all dead. It was nothing glamorous. It was, you could not sanitize it. There was no way to make it a romantic gesture. It was horrible. And crucifixion was a death inflicted upon many. But my friends, it was chosen by only one. Our savior displayed on a criminal's cross. And darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. Here's something you should know. Here's something that you may have never heard before. Here's something that makes the rest of the story extraordinary. When Jesus died, there were no Christians. When Jesus died, there were no believers. When Jesus died, there were no more followers. Sympathizers, yes, but no believers. And here's why. Because throughout his ministry, Jesus claimed too much about himself. The central part of Jesus' ministry was not his stories. It wasn't even his teaching. It's what he claimed about himself. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. You cannot crucify the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the son of man or the son of God. The son of God isn't gonna be arrested by Romans. He gave every indication that he was God's Messiah that they'd waited on for hundreds of years. God's Messiah isn't gonna be put to death by a foreign power. If Jesus was dead, if Jesus was crucified, clearly he was not who he claimed to be and he was not who they believed he was. There was no dream to keep alive and there was certainly no movement to keep moving. It was over. Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin, part of that Supreme Court, a friend of Nicodemus who we met earlier in our journey together. They hugged their kids, they kissed their wives, then they risked their lives and they asked Pilate for Jesus' body. In the first century, a crucified person cannot be buried. They were put on a trash heap to be left to the dogs and the wolves. And they went to Pilate and I'm sure they exchanged for a few pieces of silver They got permission to actually take Jesus' body and to bury him. He was not who they hoped he was, but he certainly deserved better than this. He was not who they hoped he was, but he certainly deserved to be buried. Sabbath would be there soon. They had to hurry. The religious leaders asked that the other two criminals crucified have their legs broken so they couldn't push up and breathe and they suffocated. When they came to Jesus, because of all the prior beatings, because he had been scourged, he had bled to death. So they took his body and the text tells us that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And they took Jesus' body. And as was the custom, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips, not one large cloth, but in strips of cloth. This was how they embalmed a body. Why did they embalm his body? Because they expected Jesus to stay dead. They embalmed his body in such a way that if he were alive, he would have surely suffocated now. They embalmed his body in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And as the sun set, as Passover began, they made their way home. Confused, dismayed, with no answers to a million questions. The next day, Pilate is disturbed once again. The text says the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees, they go back to Pilate and he's like, what is it this time? And they say, sir, they said, we remember. And we've been told that while he was still alive, that deceiver said that after three days, I will rise again. So sir, one last favor, 
This will serve both of us, both parties well. Would you please give an order for the tomb to be made secure until that third day? Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be far worse than the first. And Pilate said, take a guard. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. And that night, everyone slept well. Caiaphas slept well, knowing that once again, he had outmaneuvered Pilate, that once again, he had leveraged his power to get Rome to do his bidding. Pilate slept well, knowing that Passover was almost behind him. The city would empty of all these guests, all these foreigners, that he would be able to go back home to the coast where he enjoyed his life and his family. Up north somewhere, Saul of Tarsus was preparing another mind-bending message to follow Passover in his region of the world. In Rome, Emperor Tiberius had no idea any of these events ever transpired. All was as it always had been. All was as it always would be. Because everybody, everybody expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do stay dead. Little did they know, little did they know that in the next few hours, they would secure their place in history, that their names would be spoken for generations and languages they didn't know about and places they didn't even know exist. That for generations, men and women would speak their names around the world, but not as they would have wished because they would each become a footnote in the story of the rabbi from Galilee for what they intended as the end was actually just the beginning. The beginning of something brand new. The beginning of something brand new for the world and for you.